True Crime South Africa is published in conjunction with Arena Holdings, publishers of Times Live, Business Live, Sowetan Live and others. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of Arena Holdings and its affiliates. Welcome to True Crime South Africa. I'm your host, Nicole Engelbrecht, and this is episode 34, The Adlington Family Murders. Before we get started, I'd like to thank our new Patreon members, Stefanus Rue, Mandy Prevedello, and Alexander Ord. Thank you so much for your contributions through Patreon. It's greatly appreciated and goes a long way to keeping the show growing and improving. If you'd like to contribute towards the show on Patreon or PayPal, I'll leave the links in the show notes. As always, any form of support is greatly appreciated and it doesn't have to be financial. Sharing posts, inviting your friends and family to listen, and interacting on social media all go a long way to spreading the word about True Crime South Africa. You guys are really finding very creative ways to help support the show, and I'm so grateful. In fact, today's episode is as a result of one listener's kindness and support of the show. Michelle Pretorius got in touch with me a little while ago, as she had two true crime books she wanted to send me. She was kind enough to send them to me via Postnet, so that I could use them as research material. I'd like to give a huge thank you to Michelle for the thoughtful gesture. It is greatly appreciated. I hadn't heard about this case until it was mentioned on the True Crime South Africa Facebook group. As listeners and members of the group started to Google, as inevitably happens when a case is mentioned, it was noted that the facts around the case seemed confused if we compared what we knew from reading the book about the case to the earlier media reports. Of course, this is not the first time we've seen inaccurate reporting in the media, especially soon after an event. It made me think, though, that if it weren't for the book that Michelle Pretoria sent me, I may have told the story very differently. As I've progressed through this podcast journey, I've become more and more wary of using articles in the media to research. This is not an insult to the media or journalists, but it's more of an observation that not everything we're told is the truth. And when something is reported in order to fuel headlines, we always need to take it with a pinch of salt. In this case, there are very good reasons why initial media reporting was incorrect, and I'll get into those reasons. The book that Michelle sent me is called Mom Interrupted. It's written by Gerda Kruger, and the story is as told by Debbie Adlington, the sole survivor of one of South Africa's most brutal family murders. Today's episode contains descriptions of some very violent acts towards children, so please listen with that in mind. Despite that, though, I think that the story needs to be told, because it's not just a tale of devastation, but also the power of the human spirit. I tried to change up the types of cases I cover each week, and because I covered the murder of Karabo Mukwena in the last full episode, I wondered whether covering another case with domestic violence elements was the right thing to do. 
This case, though, is a completely different dynamic. And I think that's despite the absolute horror of the story I'm about to tell you. It also leaves us with something that many cases don't. Hope. So let's get into episode 34, The Adlington Family Murders. The following episode may contain sensitive material including descriptions of violence, sexual assault or graphic descriptions of injuries to victims. If you feel you may be triggered by such material, please consider this before accessing our content. To access trauma counselling or services, please see the helpline information on our show notes. On the 23rd of November 1985, Debbie McInnes was in a supermarket when a man walked up to her and asked if she knew where he could find the records and tapes. For anyone younger than maybe 25, that's what we used to use to listen to music. Debbie thought that the man had mistaken her for a supermarket employee because she had a name tag on, and she abruptly told him that she had no idea and continued on with her own shopping. Debbie was working at a pharmacy at the time. They had just opened a new store, which she was tasked with kitting out, and her mission that day was to find coffee mugs. A few days later, she received a telephone call at the pharmacy. The man on the line was Tony Adlington. He explained that he was the man that had approached her in the supermarket asking for directions. He proceeded to ask her if she'd like to go out to dinner with him. Understandably quite taken aback, Debbie was unsure. At 23 years old, she'd just come out of a very brief and tumultuous marriage, and she certainly didn't want to be getting into a relationship again. The experience had dented Debbie's confidence in her own judgment. She'd always been fiercely independent, even growing up as a child in the Mamson Toti with her parents and two brothers. Debbie's family consisted of parents David and Margaret, older brother Nigel, and younger brother Bruce, and they had been unhappy with her decision to marry her first husband, but Debbie had persisted. As she stood holding the receiver, with this man on the other side, asking her quite randomly for a date, she must have briefly wondered what her family would think of this. Her manager, to whom she was quite close, encouraged her though. She'd managed to regain her independence and was living in her own flat and had a good job. There was no harm in her going for dinner. Debbie went to dinner with Tony. She found him attractive. He was intelligent and seemed to be doing well for himself. And as he was nine years older than her, she hoped that he would be mature she would later say that, looking back on that first date, even then, he was holding back a part of himself. Debbie says in the book that it's in her nature to be led, and she thinks that this is maybe why she felt so comfortable with Tony, who liked making the decisions, and always seemed in control of himself. I find this statement strange, considering her description of herself as fiercely independent, and the strength that she would later display. 
But I think that this is the complexity of the human character. We're independent, yet in the right situations, it's easier to relent. We're critical thinkers, but it may also be easy to put blinders on. Tony Adlington had grown up in Zimbabwe when it was still Rhodesia. He'd served in the military during the conflict in that country, although exactly where he was stationed and what his role was is unknown. Tony's parents still lived in Zimbabwe. His father was a doctor, and his childhood was described as a happy one by his mother Anne, sister Jane, and two half-sisters, Penny and Sheila. After school, Tony studied accountancy. While studying, he shared a flat with his lifelong friend, Robbie Finch. Robbie described Tony as self-assured, serious, always in control, and intensely private. Debbie and Tony became close relatively quickly, and they spent most of their time together at Tony's flat. One Christmas, Tony went to Zimbabwe to visit his family, and he told Debbie that she should stay in his flat while he was away, as he thought it was safer. During a telephone conversation while he was away, Tony introduced the idea that perhaps she should just not go back to her flat and move in with him instead. Debbie was hesitant, as she felt that it was very soon, and she was worried about giving up her own space. She also had a pet cockatiel that she was very attached to, and Tony didn't want the bird in his flat. Debbie agreed to move in, but she kept her flat, primarily as a way of holding on to some insurance, but also so that she could keep her bird. She would visit the bird at her flat, interact with him and feed him. When she decided to let the flat go, having settled in with Tony, he agreed to let the bird live with them, but on one condition. He had to stay in his cage. This was not in the bird's best interests, and she ended up giving him to her mom. Within days, the bird had flown away, never to be seen again. Debbie says that, looking back, she probably should have left with the bird. This exertion of Tony's will over her own became a constant refrain in their relationship. As she gave up this bird that meant so much to her, Debbie says that she thinks that the tone was set for the rest of their interactions. When she looks back now, she says that there were almost no decisions in their relationship that were joint. Tony made decisions that suited his needs, and he assumed that she would just go along with them. At times, she would push back, but mostly, she says, it was easier just to keep the peace. Tony bought a piece of land and spoke about building a dream house on it. Debbie naturally thought that this would be a joint project, so that it could be both their dreams. But that wasn't what he had in mind at all. Instead, he spent hours holed up in his study, drafting plans and making sketches. Debbie tried to give her input, but he shut her down. Eventually, she left him to it. They never did live in that house.
for all Tony Adlington's steadfastness and controlled demeanour. He was also rather impulsive, it seems. This may have just been what it seemed like to the outside world, because he didn't share any of his plans, even with Debbie. That may have been what his constant changes were about in the beginning. But later, I think they became more about hiding the truth. In February 1987, Tony informed Debbie that he was being transferred to Johannesburg. He never asked her if it was okay with her, or if she would see fit to join him. He just assumed she would be going with him. She agreed, but her parents insisted that they should return to Durban a year later to get married. This was, of course, still the 80s, and living together while unwed was still frowned upon. Debbie's parents also had concerns about her uprooting herself to another province for a man who'd made no long-term commitment to her. Tony was working as a director in Johannesburg, and Debbie got a job as a secretary. She says that she is acutely aware that all the small concessions she made most likely contributed to Tony's final exertion of his will. I think that this family's story can certainly be a cautionary tale for many, but I also think that it's important to take the right lessons from it. There's no doubt that all relationships take a bit of give and take to work. The problem comes in not when you make an occasional concession to your partner, or pick your battles every now and then. The problem comes in when one partner is constantly suppressing their needs and desires for the other, or when one partner simply doesn't consider that anyone else's opinion is important. There's a very good possibility that if you're in a relationship, you're going to be listening to this podcast looking for red flags so that this horror never visits your door. But I think it's important that we see the red flags in context as well. I wanted to read you a short passage from the book where Debbie explains her feelings around these continuous concessions that she made to Tony. Quote, I understand that many people will influence and affect my life, but that I need to live by my own rules. Never again will I compromise my needs. I will be flexible, certainly, but I will also do everything possible to avoid surrendering my comfort or desires in favour of anyone else's. This has been one of the hardest lessons I've learned, and it took a terrible, tragic loss to do so. But in all conscience, it wasn't so much that Tony took my power and individuality from me, as that I gave it up. It was my duty to look after myself, and I don't think I did a good job of that at all. I believe that my first priority was to look after Tony. That thinking failed us both. But my sincere hope is that others might learn from my mistakes. End quote. At this point, that terrible lesson was still many years off, though, as in 1988, Debbie and Tony 
briefly returned to Durban to get married. The following year, they moved to Eden Glen on the East Rand of Johannesburg and decided to start a family. Debbie's been described as a born mother, and while I'm not convinced that some women are born to be mothers and others not, I do get the concept that some women seem to really gravitate toward the role, and I can see that Debbie might be one of those people. She says that Tony was kinder and gentler when she was pregnant, and he seemed to look forward to being a dad. Debbie would never speak of any physical abuse, although she says that the emotional abuse was considerable. Tony presented an imposing and aggressive physical figure, shouting in her face and brushing past her too close. Although she says that he never actually hit her, I can't help but think that this imposing figure he cut was a form of both emotional and physical abuse. The threat was there. Know your place, or I'll put you back in it. Their first child, Kevin, was born on the 11th of January, 1990. Debbie remembers being surprised when she saw his crop of strawberry blonde hair, but her roots are Scottish, so it makes sense. She says that Tony was really good with Kevin, and looking back now, she notices that as they had more children, that were sometimes not necessarily as well-planned as Kevin was, he became more detached from each successive child. Debbie fell pregnant with their daughter, Caitlin, and she was born on the 29th of August, 1991. They had their pigeon pair, and although Tony wasn't quite as eager as he'd been about Kevin, he was still a good father, in Debbie's opinion. At this point, the couple decided that it would be better for Debbie to stop working and care for the children full-time, rather than paying for childcare. Tony was still earning good money, so they could afford to if they were careful. It's probably important, at this point, to clarify that Tony handled the household finances completely. Debbie had no involvement at all, and he paid all of the bills. In 1992, Debbie fell pregnant again, and Tony was extremely unhappy. He switched jobs a lot, often with little warning or explanation. Debbie felt at the time that he seemed to be trying to find positions in which he could fulfill his ambitions, but in hindsight, I can only think that there might have been more to it than that. She acknowledges that she never really discussed his feelings about her third pregnancy with him. Without playing psychologist, which I'm definitely not, Debbie was clearly very devoted to her children. They were the one area of her life where she could make an impact, and so that's where she kept her focus. I don't think Tony liked the fact that her attention was elsewhere, and I would even risk to say that the very act of her getting pregnant, without planning it, made him feel like his control was slipping away with each baby. When Craig was born on the 1st of December 1992, 
Debbie noted a distinct difference in Tony's attitude towards the child. After Craig's birth, Debbie says that their lives settled into a comfortable rhythm until Tony decided that wasn't working for him anymore. When Craig was seven months old, Tony announced he'd been transferred to Cape Town and the family would be moving. There were no discussions, but for the first time, Debbie, seeing her children's stability at risk, tried to express her concerns. Tony had made his mind up, though, and soon the family was on their way to the mother city. They moved into a house in Constantia, which, although Debbie had no hand in choosing, the family grew to love. Debbie fell in love with Cape Town, too, and as someone who moved from Joburg to Cape Town six years ago, I can completely understand that. It's not the same for everyone, but it really is a place that creeps into your heart, and it isn't long until you feel really at home. The children began to develop their very distinct personalities. Kevin was quiet, confident and funny. Caitlin was serious and shy, but kind and loving. Craig loved everyone and everything. The children had been begging for a dog, and Tony, of course, had a very specific idea of which dog he wanted. So when Debbie came home one day with a puppy, he made her return it so that he could pick one from the litter instead. There was also no fun family moment for the kids to choose the name. Tony chose it. Her name was Hazel. Kevin had always wanted his own dog, so when he was old enough, they got him aboard a collie. But Tony took an instant dislike to the dog, and frightened the dog so much that Debbie realised the only option was to rehome him. Tony was continuously trying new business ventures, and his latest was a coffee shop that he and Debbie would run. Debbie's mother would later say that when she'd occasionally come to visit the couple in Cape Town, she'd always had the feeling that Tony was insincere, like there was a part of him that wasn't being shown. She noticed that he was very domineering, and that Debbie always gave in. She said that he would overreact at the smallest things. They were once visiting her parents in Durban, when Tony purchased a newspaper with a magazine inside. While he was busy with the newspaper, Debbie's dad picked up the magazine and started flipping through it. Tony said nothing. He simply folded up the newspaper, stood up, and told Debbie to pack her bags, as they were leaving immediately. They still had a week of their planned visit, but they left within hours of the incident. In 1996, Debbie fell pregnant again, but from the beginning, Tony refused it. He told her to get an abortion. Debbie refused, but she went through weeks of constant pressure from Tony, and she eventually miscarried. Tony took her to the hospital and left her in the room alone while she had a DNC performed, because he had another appointment. Tony seemed to see this pregnancy as a betrayal from Debbie, 
as she says that he became increasingly verbally and emotionally abusive. He ranted at her in front of the children. He walked past her and lifted his hand as though he was going to slap her, but never did. He seemed to enjoy her reaction more than anything. His behaviour became worse when he was under pressure, or when things weren't going his way. He continuously lied and made promises to the children that he never kept. The kids, for their part, still idolised their father, but Kevin was getting older and Debbie thinks that he was starting to realise that all the excuses his dad was giving him and the broken promises were not coincidences. Tony continued to swap out one business for another, and never seemed satisfied with anything. He eventually bought a real estate franchise, and tried his hand at that, while Debbie ran the tuck shop at the children's school. Debbie describes one of Tony's favourite things to do, and in the context of what he would eventually do, it actually gives me the creeps thinking about it. Tony would wait for his children to fall asleep and then crawl into their darkened rooms and jump on their beds, yelling to scare them. Debbie says that the kids thought it was hilarious most of the time, that it's really quite bizarre in my opinion, and a rather frightening precursor for the last time that he would ever creep into their rooms while they slept. Tony also exhibited some really odd risk-taking behaviour. Debbie remembered being in a butcher shop with him once, and the lady in front of them had been distracted by her baby when her change was put on the counter. Tony stole it when she wasn't looking. He would also go into stores and put batteries into items to steal them. He saw it as a game, she says. He wanted to see how far he could push it. Again, I don't want to pretend to analyse anyone, but considering that we know that Tony was on a significant downward spiral at this point, this behaviour sort of fits with that. I mean, he was a chartered accountant. If he was caught shoplifting, that could be the end of his career. But still, he did it. I can't help but think that he might have known that he was probably not going to be able to dig himself out of the hole that he was falling into, so he figured he'd make it fun while it lasted. Debbie had no idea that there was anything wrong with their finances, so she assumed that when Tony came home one day and told her that he'd sold the house that they were living in, that it had to be just another of his control tactics. She was furious at this, and she says that he seemed to revel in her anger. To rub salt into the wound, on their last Sunday in the house, Debbie spent a lot of the day preparing a big lunch for them so that they could sit and enjoy it as a family. As she was preparing to set the table, she saw Tony loading all the kids in the car. They came back ten minutes later with sweets chips and cool drinks that he'd bought for them. No one was very hungry when lunch was served, of course. 
again. He watched her carefully for her reaction, satisfied that he had angered and hurt her. Although Debbie had lived through this treatment for many years, she was beginning to get to the point of no return. She never said anything to Tony, and she still loved him. In the earlier years, the good days had outweighed the bad, just enough to keep her by his side. But in those last few months, the bad definitely started to outweigh the good. Unfortunately, Debbie wasn't working with all of the information. Had she known the depths of his deception and the dark thoughts that were brewing in his head, she would have whipped up her children and run for the hills. Sadly, Tony was very good at hiding things, even the most horrific of things. Tony moved the family to what would be their final home together in Marina de Gama. Marina de Gama is an enclosed residential area which is upmarket and has phenomenal views. Debbie tried to see the upside of the move by thinking that at least it would be safe for her children to play outside the house and garden. Safety was the last thing that house would bring. Debbie admits that during this time, she was going through an emotional crisis of her own. She'd just lost her best friend to cancer and was in deep mourning. Tony was quietly plummeting into his own mental hell, and he shared nothing with Debbie. It was during this time that Debbie first mentioned to Tony that she thought she should leave. He calmly commented, that if she did, she shouldn't try to take the children. In the months before the worst day of Debbie Adlington's life, she noticed subtle shifts in Tony's behaviour, but they only really stand out as she looks back on them now. She would wake up to find him standing at the foot of their bed, staring at her. When she asked him what the matter was, he would tell her to go back to sleep. In the December before that fateful day, Debbie and the children visited her parents in Durban for two weeks. Tony had declined to join them, saying that he had business to attend to. While they were there, he would phone them, and started to get the boys excited with promises of quad bikes that he was going to buy them. Each time he phoned, he had a different story about which ones he'd chosen and how they were being custom-built for them. The quad bikes never materialised, of course, and Debbie noticed that Kevin was no longer falling for his father's stories. Tony probably realised that too. His house of cards was starting to tumble, one card at a time. Tony had used the proceeds from the sale of the house to plug some urgent holes, but it was nowhere near enough. He hadn't paid their rent for months, and the cheque that he'd given to the school for the children's school fees had just bounced. He didn't have any money to buy new uniforms or stationery. I don't think that it's an accident 
that Tony reached his breaking point in January. It's generally a financially taxing month for everyone, with all the additional expenses. And he was already very deep in the doing. He no doubt realised that the day that school started, all of his lies and deceit, and what he likely deemed as his failings, would be uncovered. And so he decided instead that for his children at least, school would not start that year, or ever again. Nevertheless, he sickeningly chose to keep up the charade when his family returned from their holiday. To celebrate Kevin's birthday, he took him to the mall and purchased a two and a half thousand rand sound system. The check that he used to buy it bounced too, but Tony would not be around to deal with that phone call, likely just as he'd planned. On Wednesday, the 16th of January 2002, the children were enjoying the last few days of the school holidays. Kevin had arranged a friend to come over to listen to music on his new sound system, and Caitlin had arranged to sleep over at a friend's house for the evening. Without consulting Debbie, Tony drove to Caitlin's friend's house and collected her, breaking her plans and telling her that she needed to clean her room. Kevin wanted his friend to sleep over, but Tony drove the child home, and he spent the rest of the evening playing a board game with Caitlin. Around nine o'clock, Debbie put the children to bed, kissing them goodnight, and then going to sleep herself. She says that Tony had been absolutely normal that day and during the evening, and he showed no signs that anything was wrong. She could have no inkling about to wreak havoc on all their lives. Debbie recalls waking around 5am and going to the loo. She got back into bed and must have dozed off again, because this was when her husband attacked her with an axe. The family's domestic worker would later say that the axe had first appeared on the premises about six weeks before the murders. It had first stood propped up next to the briar outside, and a week before the event, she noticed that it had been moved to Tony's home office. Debbie does not remember her husband coming at her with an axe. She has a vague recollection of a shadow approaching her. Doctors would later say that Debbie had drawn pictures of a man with an axe, though, during her early recovery and her heart rate would shoot through the roof when a male nurse with the same build as Tony approached her bed, even though she was sedated. The brain is a phenomenal thing, and I think that Debbie probably did see her husband attacking her that morning, but her brain has chosen to not let her remember. And that's probably not the worst thing. Tony struck Debbie three times in the head with the axe. The first blow knocked her unconscious, although she was still aware of loud bangs. She was filled with a deep dread that something very bad was happening, but she was unable to move. Tony then moved to Kevin's room next and struck his eldest son in the head three times as well, 
he moved from room to room, doing exactly the same to Caitlin, and finally little Craig. He then wrapped each of the children in their duvets and took their bodies to his study. He placed Kevin on the floor, Caitlin on top of him, and Craig on top of her. He then stacked family photos, business and family documents on top of his children and poured petrol over their bodies. Police would later find the petrol canister back in the garage with a bloody handprint on it. He'd taken the time to return the canister to its place. Between 6.30 and 7am, Tony Adlington lit the fire and then shot himself in the head. He died instantly. Whether or not he'd assumed that his children were dead when he set them alight, the autopsy would later show that they were not. While likely unconscious and unaware of their surroundings, we can only hope. All three children had soot and smoke in their lungs. They were still breathing when he set the fire and shot himself. Reading that completely broke my heart, so I have no idea what it must have done to Debbie when she found out. The fire caused four discarded bullets to explode, and these were the bangs that Debbie had heard. It was also these sounds, as well as the first impressions of the paramedics, that would start the narrative that these had been shooting deaths. While Debbie was in a coma, she said that she would constantly hear one of her boys calling out for her. A neighbour had also said that she'd heard a child screaming before the flames appeared above the roof. Forensic pathologists said that there was very little chance that either boy would have been able to cry out after having been hit, and there were no defensive wounds on their bodies to indicate that they'd been awake when their father hit them. We can only hope that the cry was imagined and not the last pleas of little Kevin or Craig. At 7.04, a call came into Tokai Police Station. Firefighters responding to the fire simultaneously fought the flames and searched the house for victims. The instant they saw Debbie, they knew that this was not a standard house fire. Firefighters initially thought that Debbie was dead. The top half of her skull was simply no longer there. Rightfully believing that no one could possibly survive such injuries, they started to move on, until one of them saw Debbie's hand moving. Debbie had sensed the shadow of the firefighter coming towards her, and she was trying to fend him off thinking that it was Tony coming back. All who saw Debbie's head wound figured that she must have been shot with a high-caliber gun at a very close range. This was the other thing that would lead to media articles claiming that, that the family had been shot to death, until forensics proved otherwise. The actions that firefighters took in those first moments after finding Debbie likely saved her life. 
they pumped pure oxygen into her lungs, vital to stop any further death of brain tissue, and they soaked several gauze dressings in sterilized water and wrapped her exposed brain tissue to prevent infection. I can only imagine their relief when paramedics arrived to airlift Debbie to hospital. In the meantime, other first responders were going through the rest of the house, entering the children's bedrooms further proved that something horrendous had happened in the house. Once the fire was completely extinguished, the dead bodies of the three children and Tony were found in the study. Inspector Willy Reinefeld from the Musenberg police station arrived on the scene and started to investigate. At first it appeared that the crime may have been committed by intruders and that the family had been shot, but blood spatter and autopsies would show that they were looking for a heavy, sharp implement. Debbie would later hear that firefighters had to break a heavy chain and padlock on their front gate to get in that day. They'd never owned a chain and padlock, and had certainly never chained their front gate closed. Tony had done this to prevent any of them escaping his horrendous attack, and likely to delay any responders in intervening. As the investigation into this horrendous crime continued, it emerged that Tony was heavily in debt. He was way behind on his car payments for a vehicle that he told Debbie had been paid in cash. He sold one of their cars and their lounge suite to buy four weeks' reprieve, and he owed a significant amount of money to Autopage for their cell phones. Debbie remained in a coma for three weeks. Her parents flew in the day after the incident and were told that there was not much hope for her. Debbie says that eventually the doctors stopped making predictions because she kept proving them wrong. Despite several extremely delicate surgeries, where surgeons had to pick minuscule shards of bone out of her brain, Debbie fought her way back. I often think that it was her concern for her children that gave her the strength to fight her way back to consciousness. She would not know until she was conscious again, though, that they were gone. Due to the fact that no one knew whether Debbie would survive or not, a memorial service was held for the children, and they were cremated while she was still in a coma. Debbie says that when she came out of her coma, she initially thought that she'd been in a car accident. She asked about her children, and her questions were dodged. Silent meetings happened in the corner of her hospital room, as her parents and surgeons tried to determine the best way to break the news to her. Eventually, they started with what she remembered, which was very little. She was suffering from retrograde amnesia, so she had no idea what had brought her to that hospital bed. The vague memories of that day would trickle back later. Debbie was told that her husband had attacked her and her children, and that her children had not made it. She describes being filled with anger and demanding to see Tony. They then told her 
that he'd taken his own life. Debbie, who fought her way back from the brink of death to find her children, plunged into a deep depression. Ironically, what brought her out of that too and gave her the strength to push on was also her children. The left side of Debbie's body was almost completely paralysed, but she wasn't going to allow herself to waste away in a hospital bed when her children had lost their lives. She wasn't going to give Tony that pleasure. So weighing just 39 kilograms, she started extremely painful physiotherapy and was eventually able to walk again. Very slowly, she regained much of the use of the left side of her body, although she says that even today, everything doesn't work exactly the way it should. The revelations about Tony were shocking. Debbie's parents would later say that he'd been stealing money out of the tuck shop that Debbie was running for the school. To stop him, she'd opened a separate bank account for the funds, but this didn't stop him either. He simply forged her signature on an application for a checkbook and then wrote and cashed checks on the account until it was empty. He added salt to the wound by charging her 500 rand a month for his accounting services. Debbie had told the school that she would no longer be able to run the tuck shop shortly before the attacks took place. Tony Adlington allegedly had four different aliases that he operated under. Debbie had no idea. A gun was found in the house that was registered in Debbie's name. She had never applied for a gun license or purchased a gun. Call me crazy, but this fact makes me wonder what he originally had up his sleeve for Debbie. Was he thinking about shooting the children with a weapon that was registered to her and then trying to pin their murders on her? The weapon that Tony used to shoot himself was registered to him. He carried it for a while, claiming that he needed it when he carried large amounts of cash. None of the official businesses that he ran would necessitate this, so it remains to be seen where such cash would have come from. Having no finances to speak of, no job and still needing a long period of physical and emotional recovery, Debbie left Cape Town to live with her parents in Durban. It was difficult, as not only had she been out of the parental home for decades, but she was also dealing with a roller coaster of emotions. She started seeing a psychologist, who she credits with bringing her back from the brink of suicide. Debbie would eventually move back to Cape Town and find a job. She realised about a year after the murders that she needed to have a funeral of her own for her children. While the children had been cremated and a memorial service had been held for them while Debbie was still in a coma, their ashes were still at the funeral home, waiting for her to be ready. She and a group of friends and family held a service for her children in Sakai Forest, where she spread their ashes. She says that the moment she saw the boxes containing the ashes, she thinks that reality hit home, and she realised that they were never coming back. 
as Debbie continued to physically and emotionally heal, she realized that there was another missing piece to her emotional healing journey. She needed to be a mother again. She discussed the idea with her psychologists and doctors, and all said that there was no reason for her not to go ahead with the plan. Of course, she didn't have a partner to conceive with, so she used a sperm donation facility through Cape Fertility Centre. After several attempts, and thinking that she may have to face the possibility of never being a mother again, Debbie Adlington fell pregnant. She gave birth to Kylie on the 12th of November 2005. She says that it was always very important to her that her daughter knew about her siblings, and the pair regularly visit to Kyle Forest to tell Kevin, Caitlin and Craig about their latest news and simply spend time in silence in their beautiful final resting place. Debbie says that she has forgiven her husband for what he did to her, because she survived, but she can never forgive him for what he did to her children. Despite the emotional abuse she experienced at his hands, she says that she still cannot believe that the man she married was capable of wiping out his entire family. Debbie works as a motivational speaker now, as she wants to share her story with others and try to help stop the scourge of familicides. Sometime after Kylie Ann was born, a weekend away was arranged with Debbie and two other female survivors of familicide. The three women, bonded by pain, spent the weekend walking the beach, wiping away each other's tears, and enjoying the simple fact that someone else truly understood their deep, inexplicable pain. According to an IOL article, psychiatrist Sean Kaliski from Falkenberg Hospital said that there are usually two reasons behind family murders. Quote, The first is when the person is mentally ill, and there is a gamut of psychotic illnesses which would encompass that, and the person would find reasons why he should kill his family. A person can be psychotic for years before his family detects that something is wrong. The second is marital problems, usually when the perpetrator has been rejected by the partner. He decides enough is enough, and that he'll take everyone away. The killing of children could be a retaliation against the partner, or he could kill them because he doesn't feel he could leave them without parents. End quote. Gerard Lapiskachny had some interesting insights about this case in the documentary Heisgenoot Vare Levensdramas. I'd wondered about the use of the axe, because of course this was not the first or last time that we would see a familicide committed like this. Gerard says that it's all about not drawing attention. If you use a gun to kill more than one person, there's a good chance that the noise is either going to cause your other intended victims to flee, or attract the attention of neighbours. An axe causes maximum damage in just a few strikes, and it's completely silent. 
Gerard says that many of these familicides occur in families that are patriarchal by nature. So the man is in control and holds all of the financial responsibility. He says, though, that these events are extremely difficult to predict because the same set of circumstances can end in many different ways, depending on the situation. He divides familicides into two groups, those that are as a result of a long history of domestic violence, and then what he calls anomic familicides. And I think that the Adlington family murder fits into the second group. Gerard says that anomic familicide is present with a perpetrator who actually wants to kill himself and decides to take his family with him because he thinks they can't live without him or as a retaliation against the partner. Anomic familicides are usually planned, as we know this one was, and some of the warning signs to look out for include threats, a sense of perceived rejection and the female in the situation will usually be in a state of denial and isolated on purpose. Some say that Tony could have been suffering from PTSD due to his time in the military. Gerard Labaskachny, although working off very little information, does not believe this to be true. I don't think it's too far of a stretch to believe that Tony was living with some sort of personality disorder, his impulsiveness and risk-taking behaviour, which escalated toward the end, certainly indicates this. But I don't think it's as clear-cut as that. The fact that Tony brought his children's bodies into his office and died with them there has bugged me. I'm pretty sure he believed Debbie was dead. But why separate her from her children, even in death? Or was that the whole point? In Tony Adlington's disturbed mind, was the act of isolating with his children and attempting to completely destroy them and himself through fire, just his last way of showing Debbie that even in death he would take from her what she loved the most, and even in death he would be controlling how they all went out. Maybe I shouldn't be trying to apply clear-minded logic to the mind of a disturbed person, but if that is indeed what he was trying to achieve, he failed. Debbie not only took back her own life, but she took back the memories of her children and her beloved motherhood. And Debbie continues to take back her life every single time she stands up in a room filled with people and tells them how her son Kevin wanted to be a chef at an island resort. Caitlin loved maths, and Craig was the most loving child she had ever met. Debbie has clawed her way back to life from the depths of hell, in memory of her children. So I thought it fitting to end this episode with extracts from the eulogies that were read at the funerals of the children by Debbie's friend and pastor, John Miller. Quote, Kevin was 12 years old and enjoyed school and all his activities. His red hair and pale skin made him conspicuous and he had to be careful of the sun. 
he enjoyed the beach and outdoor activities and had many friends. He loved to stay overnight. Like all kids, his manners while at the home of his friends were always very good. He was cheerful and spontaneous, with a beautiful, sunny disposition. Always willing and helpful, he encapsulated the very essence of a child, a zest for life. He was easily identifiable with a mischievous twinkle in the eye and an infectious grin on his face. His enthusiastic greetings at school and his ever-present positive attitude made him a delight to teach. He embraced life wholeheartedly and lived every day to the full. Kevin beat his own drum. He had boundless energy and will be sorely missed by all. Ten-year-old Caitlin was the most academic of the three children. She excelled at school and at mathematics. She loved reading and spent hours with her nose in a book and also enjoyed dancing and sports. With blue eyes and platinum blonde hair, she tanned easily and loved the beach. She had an artistic ability and enjoyed working with clay, paint and watercolours. Never a rowdy child, she could hold her own against her brothers. Caitlin always had a sunny smile and was a kind, happy, friendly girl. She was also shy, gentle and caring and laughter was always there when she was around. Caitlin looked like her mom. She was a great friend and always shared things. One of her teachers gave thanks for having known Caitlin, calling her a beautiful girl with a delightful smile. This teacher said that she saw all the pupils in her class as a garden of flowers and that Caitlin had blossomed and grown into a generous, full bloom that just kept on giving love. Nine-year-old Craig was the most gregarious of the three. He learned at an early age how to raise his voice and give his opinion, competing to be heard over his older brother and sister. He enjoyed singing to himself. He was a happy and good-looking child who liked chatting and spoke easily to all, even adults. He made friends and always helped his mother around the house. Craig loved going to his best friend's house on what he called adventures and jumping on the trampoline. He also liked to go fishing. Craig was loving, caring and affectionate. He made silly jokes to cheer people up and always had a joke up his sleeve. He was a special boy. End quote. Rest gently, Kevin, Caitlin, and Craig. And Debbie, keep fighting. Your strength continues to change lives. Thank you for listening to episode 34, The Adlington Family Murders. If you enjoyed this episode, 
please be sure to subscribe to the show on the platform you're using to listen right now. Don't forget that you can follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. I'll be back next Friday, probably with a Spotlight mini-sode. Until then, as always, thank you for your support and I'll chat to you soon. Bye.